Give the secret handshake. Check your cloaks. And remove your tinfoil hats. This is the Illuminati Social Club. The podcast you don't want they to know about. This is bullshit. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanation, but not necessarily the only ones to the mysteries we will examine. Welcome to the In Search of series here on the Illuminati Social Club. I'm your host, Jason from Parma. Joining me, as he does, from the netherworld of Guelph, Ontario, Mr. Oliver Oxide. It's more like the nether region. Uh, <laughs> hello, all. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Excellent. And from uh, another netherworld of... Halifax, Nova Scotia. I've heard that's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Doc Pinko, Steve Flugier. Well, there's a lot less granola here than there is in Guelph. Oh, yes. Well, all your granola is either, you know, uh, soaked with seawater or frozen. Right. And and no beet lattes, so. No, no. Well, that's down in uh, Hamilton, so. Well, that's true, yes. that That is Hamilton. Today we are talking about life after life. Uh, yeah, my 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 initial note for this, uh, I don't get this title. And then a further note, even after watching the whole episode, I still don't get the title. But okay. Uh, Oliver, what were your impressions of this episode? I think you're exactly right. Talk about false advertising in the title, uh, because they really don't make that argument um, with this whole thing. Uh, I know I say this every year when we when we get around the third or fourth episode, Jason, but I have such high hopes for this season. And then we get to episode five, and you know, around that area, and I my my hopes just get dashed. I know, I know. Let's hope there's something coming up later, which it won't be. It won't be on the day we're recording this episode. Uh, this episode, this ep- it just makes no sense. Oh, I know. Uh, Steve, what were your impressions? Well, my first response was, and and I will um, have to give you some context for this comment. My first comment was, wait a minute. Now, here's the context. As the... <laughs> As the two of you know, I am a very big fan of the TV show Columbo. Yes, yes, you are. One of the reboot episodes from the from uh, nineteen ninety April nineteen ninety is an episode called "Uneasy Lies the Crown." Okay, in which a dentist kills the lover of his wife by filling a cavity. With a self-dissolving gel that puts uh, poison into him and he dies when he's on the road. He goes to a poker game and the wife calls him to tell him that she, that the lover has died at her place. So he's trying to frame her for the murder. Hmm. Now, in a fit of nostalgia, I decided to rewatch an episode of Macmillan and Wife. From 1977, in which a dentist kills his wife's lover by filling a cavity with self-dissolving gel 
so that he died, she calls him at a poker game. And so this is why I went, wait a minute. As I was watching McMillan, I thought, I know this. So I looked it up. Stephen Bochco wrote both episodes. Oh. He just rewrote himself hmm. for the Columbo episode, thinking, you know, after what, 23 years, nobody would remember it. That episode, this episode feels like that. Hmm. It reminded me a lot, a lot of the bits reminded me of some of the other stuff, like, like the, the fact that they, they brought rats back to life. Hmm. Oh, uh, yeah. We saw that. We saw that with the hamsters. Yeah. I, right? I, I, I refer, I referenced that uh, in my notes because yeah. you know, we know how much Oliver loves that. And, and I think, maybe that's why you and Oliver didn't quite get what was going on was because it just seemed like rewritten bits from season one and two <laughs> that they just rewrote dropped in different characters, of course, different people, but basically saying the same thing. I, I have to say your first impression, the way you, the way you put it, uh, my notes fit perfectly with that uh yeah. i don't get this uh even after listening to the whole thing i still don't get okay uh <laughs> colombo reference mcmillan and wife uh in i'm still wor- I, i'm still working on a flow chart over here on that explanation <laughs> <laughs> but i did i did write down rat on the rocks yes. i did i did i did realize <laughs> that, that that they were redoing the rat thing but certainly and, not to and we have a title yeah well, Enough of enough of us, and you know, with roundabout stories. Uh, <laughs> let's let uh, Leonard Nimoy tell us a roundabout story. I guess. For men in war, death is an ever-present possibility and terror. Soldiers who experienced near-death encounters suggest that death may not be something to be feared. At what point does life fade into death? Is it possible to scientifically prove that there is life after life? Uh... I... Probably not. Uh... (laughs) Mm. So, soldiers in battle fear death. Uh, once again, in search of is on the case, <laughs> telling us everything we don't know. Yeah, it. it, it uh, the opener. The opener is is like okay. Well, nobody should fear death because it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. I don't think people fear death as they as as much as they fear how they're going to die. Yeah, yes. uh, I, I I've heard it. Um, I've heard it summed up this way. I don't fear death. I fear getting dead. <laughs> yeah. You know, you kind of want it to be quick. Don't want any long suffering. Don't want a lot of pain. Just, you know, let's just lights out. Have a nice day. Um, so, yeah, they, they, and then they start off. Yeah, they're starting off talking about stats from the Vietnam War, which, you know, um, if if this were today, you know, they'd just be reading the Wikipedia page. Um, and we're introduced to uh, Tommy Clack? Quack? Yep. I, Clack. Is yeah. it Clack? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was hit in Vietnam, and uh, 
said that he was conscious the whole time that you know he he was there on the battlefield um although he you know he he then through his story apparently you know felt it was an out of body experience um now i'm not going you know i won't say that he doesn't believe this but you know you know but to me you know the brain is the brain is really weird mm-hmm. and we don't know much about what happens in the brain you know as the uh you know as the rest of the body uh go goes through something resembling death <laughs> well this is the thing i mean what happened to him was a major trauma mm-hmm. um and so the reason that he was conscious the whole time probably again i'm not a medical doctor um is that the, the that his body had gone through so much trauma his brain was trying to figure out what was going on mm-hmm. um this is a common thing when people have these things where they don't feel any pain because i think the immediately it's just because the brain just shoots out adrenaline and tries to figure out what's what's going on right i I think you're right jason i think we can't say that this guy is lying i i think that he's rationalizing a little bit but i think the major part of it is is that his brain has just gone through a major trauma and is trying to deal with it we do know how the brain reacts uh and how weird the brain gets because we have dreams and nightmares Mm -hmm. that is all brain all the time oh yeah uh, just doing its own little thing. Right. Um, and uh, this whole episode to me was a bit of a, a, um, a kind of a reality sandwich. Like the first story and the last story are kind of like very anecdotal. Mm-hmm. The middle one is the rational explanation. Um, so that to me, this is just kind of the top, you know, slice of wonder on this, on this rationality sandwich in this episode. Mm-hmm. Steve, anything to add? Um, well, um, I looked up Tommy Clack, uh, and he, there's videos of him on a website called witness to war in which he makes reference to his in search of, uh, appearance. Ah, uh, is it favor, you know, is he, is he favorable towards in search of, or is he, you know, yeah, yeah, like... for, for, from what I've seen, he still believes that he had that experience. Mm, okay. Um, and, and for for people who don't see it, he he lost both of his legs and his right arm. Right. So, by by the way, I got to give the camera, the cameraman some point points for framing that. You know, to like, you know, because you see him on the phone. You know, he's holding yeah. the phone. Yeah. And then they pull out. It's like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh boy, okay. Uh, so. All right. Um, I don't know what this clip is. Uh, I, I really, honestly, I don't remember much of this episode, and I watched it twice. If Tommy Clack had been a soldier during World War II, he probably would have died. The high-level technology of modern medicine saved his life and made it possible for him to recount his out-of-body experience. It is ironic, however, that the same sophisticated medical devices which we use to keep Tommy alive also make it more difficult to determine exactly when death occurs. Well, it's it's not really making it more difficult. It's pro- it's defining death. You know, at, at one time, 
you know, if, if you didn't have a heartbeat, you were dead. You know, uh, even though you might have still been alive, <laughs> you know, they, they just, you know, your brain was still there. You know, possibly your heartbeat was like, you know, incredibly slow, but, you know, you were still alive. Um, yeah, because what new technology does is it doesn't tell you when you die. It tells you when you're not dead. Right. Yes. Right, like like like, yeah. like that. It yeah. it tells you that your heart stopped beating, but you're still not dead. So it's it it tells you when death is not, rather when death is. Right. Um. Yeah. Uh, defining the moment of death is really difficult. Is it a lack of vital signs? A lack of heartbeat? Uh, brain activity? Social life? Oh wait, that that's me. Uh, <laughs> I'd have been declared dead a long time ago. Uh and then we then we meet uh, Doctor Popovich, who is uh, well, he's doing what Oliver loves doctors to be doing: uh, killing rats and bringing them back to life. Oh God! <laughs> the poor uh, rat. <laughs> oh, I know. Free, freezing the rat down to uh, a really cold temperature, and then uh, bringing it back to life. Which is what they were doing to the hamsters, and you know this. And this is why I said it, it's like it's rewritten. Yes, it's just a different doctor with a different animal, a different rodent. That's all. Exactly. And they they ask you know once again they ask about are we able to free, you know can can we freeze humans and bring them back? Well, and we discussed this on the uh, cryogenics episode. I think it was what another mm-hmm. callback. Yeah. Um. You know, humans don't freeze well, uh, you know, because we're big, <laughs> some some more than others, me. Um, and, yeah, you know, free and apparently the freezing part isn't the isn't the, the tough part. It's the thawing part in one piece without the without the ice crystals uh you know, piercing all of our vital organs as we thaw. But that's just what I've heard. But they don't freeze the rat. <laughs> no, they, they just take they, the... they 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 cool him down. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a little bit different. And the story that's told here certainly is. I'm sure Steve has some notes on this guy, but um, seems fairly rational to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, this to me is the scientific portion of the episode, right? Even though they're they're playing, you know, this poor rat. Steve, do you have any notes on Doctor Pops? No, I, I mean, I mean on on uh, on uh, Mr. Milligan. Oh well, I have a clip for uh, Mr. Milligan to introduce him, and then we can start talking about him nicely, of course. It was a cold evening in January 1976 in an area near Winnipeg, Canada. The temperature had dropped from a brisk 32 degrees Fahrenheit to nearly 40 below. Ted Milligan, then 16, was a member of the St. John Cathedral School. Part of the curriculum included a 27-mile cross-country snowshoe hike. Ted set out on his assignment along with a number of his classmates. Only a few miles from the end of the hike, however, 
Ted collapsed into unconsciousness. His colleagues, unable to move him in the intense cold, returned to their school for help. Dr. James Bristow, an expert on human frostbite, freezing, and cardiopulmonary resuscitation, attempted to revive Ted. The lad was uh, clinically dead. There was no heartbeat. The cardiogram showed a flat line on the cardioscope indicating asystole. He was, of course, not breathing. And uh, his body temperature was very cold to touch. And in fact, uh, the temperature as recorded by a low reading thermometer was uh, 25 degrees Celsius, the normal being about 37 degrees. Okay, uh, a dip of 12 degrees is uh, pretty significant. Um, well, that and that's Celsius. Yes. So that's like 18 oh, yeah. in Fahrenheit. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say again, in search of, on the case, it's cold in Winnipeg. <laughs> oh, I, I have been to Winnipeg in February. I can vouch for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in search of, yeah, keep going, you know, keep keep dropping the knowledge on us. Um, so basically, uh, Ted Milligan was a Tedsicle. Um, <laughs> uh, he was registering 25C rather than 37C. Um, first of all, okay, one more thing. What's, oh, man. Part of the rec- part of the uh, the the requirement to graduate from uh, high school is to go on a twenty seven mile snowshoe hike. He's Canadian. What do you expect? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I thought that would just be walking down the, the aisle to get your <laughs> diploma. <laughs> you need snowshoes. This is, as I said, this is this is this part is is kind of the reality based. However. Mm-hmm. Well, I was watching this I because I am a watcher of old MASH uh, episodes that I'm I'm also wondering where, because, of course, his extremities would have frozen first. And so I'm wondering where all these readings came from. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Because if you're too cold, you won't get a pulse hmm. because your extremities are colder than the core of your body. Right. Uh, obviously, this guy survived. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, I just, uh, I was just happy for this little instance because it actually was scientifically backed up. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the next clip is sort of a continuation of this. Ted Milligan, now a private in the Canadian Armed Forces, recalls his ordeal. Well, mainly it was just like being asleep. Like a total, total darkness and waking up out of a sleep that you didn't know that you had gone into. I'm not afraid of dying. When I die, I'm going to die, and I'll probably die with a smile on my face. Good for him. Good, you know, I, you know, it's amazing that, you know, first of all, it's amazing that he was, you know, out that long and did not uh, suffer any uh, apparently lasting damage. You know, no, no permanent damage or anything. Um, now we meet uh, Dr. Spoonmaker, I think it is, um, who apparently has plenty of experience bringing people back from the brink of death. 
I'd question his ability as a doctor. <laughs> uh, anyone? I do have a clip of him, I think. I did look him up, and I found some information on him, but maybe we play the clip first. Yes, let's play the clip first. The first questions that began to come to my mind is, is that could this in some way be a dreamlike state? Could this in some way be hallucination? If you take a person, for example, who's hallucinating, if you take a person who may be in DTs from withdrawal from a drug dependency problem, they're seeing pink elephants, they're seeing uh, white rats, red rats, whatever it may be, but this is a terrifying experience to them. It was an unreal when they became back into and, and filtered back into the mainstream of life after being hospitalized over a period of time and rehabilitated. These kind of vivid expressions that they had, either in dream states or hallucinatory states, or if they were on any kind of drug medications for decreasing uh, pain or whatever, they knew they were not real. They were unreal. And the word that began to pass through many of these people as we talked back and forth was, this was a real experience that I had. I don't know what it was, but it indeed was real. Okay. Um... So, hallucinations aren't real, but near-death experience is? Is that what he's trying to say? <laughs> this was about the girl with the polio, right? This, uh, this doctor, this wasn't the Winnipeg guy. This was... This was... I think so. Yeah. Uh, he's dreaming in Technicolor, if I can put it that way. Because <laughs> uh, there is no difference. Right, no. It's, it's just your brain goes, hey, well, your mm -hmm. brain goes, goes off on itself. Your brain says, oh, look, here, I got all this stuff to show you. Yeah. Before you before you kick off. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it, it depends on what you mean by a real experience. Mm -hmm. It is a real experience because they've experienced something, mm -hmm. right? Their they've had a, a reaction in their brain. So the experience itself is real. If, Whether if you're going through withdrawal. Happened, yeah. That's a real experience. Yeah, exactly. You know, if you, uh, see, and if you see white rats or red rats when you're going through withdrawals, guess what? You saw them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. They may not be, you know, corporeal beings. Oh, look at me dropping the big words. Ooh, uh, you know, 10 points. But, you know, it was real to that person. So, yeah. So, Steve... You have information. I found his obituary. Oh. He died in 2005. Oh. There was no on. reference to there's no reference to his in search of experience his uh, in search of appearance. Oh good. But but they did tell me that he invented a new type of catheter. Okay. So I, I read I read where one doctor said I didn't meet Dr. Shoemaker, but I use his catheter all the time. <laughs> and I say pass me the Shoemaker. That's Spoonmaker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I my only was... my only my only question is: Is it a catheter that taps into the brain? <laughs> I, I got the impression it was not. Okay. Oh no! Just just guessing. Oh no! This wasn't about the polio thing. Uh, now we meet Janet, who who had a near death experience thanks to polio. Oh, Janet's a treat. Okay. Yes. Um, she saw a bright light like everyone else, and apparently met her deceased grandmother. Which made her realize that uh, she was dead. Um, she saw. 
I like she she also saw everything she did in life and saw that she didn't do anything in her life. And that's what she got black marks for. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and she wanted to go back, and then she was able to swallow. That's pretty much all the story. Oh my I got. god! <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that that was an interesting segue, my friend. <laughs> but this is all, um, uh, you know, again. And, and I think I could yell it from the rooftops. And I, you know what? I have a feeling I'm going to yell the same thing from the rooftops in the next episode. <sighs> Anecdotes are not data. No. Now, again, we have no way of knowing whether she saw this or not. We just right. have to trust what she says, right? She saw a white light. Everyone sees a white light. Well, yeah. <clears throat> Why don't people see a red light? Oh, that's a, that's yeah. a, well, probably because what they're seeing are there are the lights in the hospital. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, even that, I mean, meeting your dead grandmother and black marks for things she hasn't done and all this kind of stuff. It's like, again, your brain's just going haywire. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot. I don't know a lot about polio, um, but I, I would think that if it's affecting your muscles, it may have an effect on your brain. I don't know. Um, it sounds to me like it's a bit like meningitis. But yeah, I'm sure people can tell me otherwise. Um I I have seen three people die in my mm-hmm. lifetime. My mother, my father, and a girlfriend. And mm-hmm. it's all always, always, always a process. We can always we can we can of course name off things that may be very short in process mm-hmm. when you die. But for the most part, it's a process. And she was just going through this process. And the fever broke or whatever polio does or did, mm-hmm. uh just it just Cure, you know, his body cured itself. The brain, the, the journey that the brain went on is not relative to that. It's just protecting itself. Right. And <sighs> it, it, it stimulates itself by dreams mm-hmm. to keep it going. Maybe that's what it is. Steve, anything to add before I play the last clip? Well, the only thing is I should like to point out that even that her grandmother called her Mary. Oh, okay. Which is only something they called her until she they were eleven. She was eleven, and they then they started calling her another name for some reason. Yeah, I don't know where they went from Mary to Janet. Yeah, I don't know. She didn't explain that. Okay, uh, that's how she knew it was her grandmother. Oh, okay. Or it was her own mind, um, <laughs> because you know she obviously knew that she was called Mary uh, earlier in her life or in a past life or whatever. Whatever you know, I don't know. Uh, so we have I have the final clip, which I believe is a long one. Uh, it's that whole ending thing. No oh God, which yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we cannot say for sure that the life after life experience is actually death itself. Obviously, however, it does alter our perceptions of life and the hereafter. Based on the experiences, that we've heard from those who have had the near-death experience. This has influenced my concept of a God that makes him far greater, far more merciful, far more loving than I'd ever conceived of him to be before. Dr. Lauren Young is an eminent theologian and scholar. His experiences with those who have had life-after-life encounters have given him new religious insights. Or have been under the influence of the light who have really come into a personal encounter with this 
image of mercy and love, come back into this world with a totally different attitude. And to me, this is a solid encounter, an exquisite expression of what it really means to come face to face with God. If we could remove from society a major fear, there's a tremendous contribution. Death is a major fear. Those who've experienced it are no longer afraid of life or death. Okay. Um, what, what did he say, anyway? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, if I was going to be really snarky, Jason... It, yes. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, this is completely hypothetical, but if Oliver was going to be completely snarky... Go ahead, Oliver. It, it is. It's so far from my character. Um, I would say that combining the two words theologian and scholar in the same sentence is somewhat of an oxymoron. <laughs> However, that was if I was being really snarky. Right. At the at the end of the day, just being a rational, you know, you know, my usual Oliver self, I would say that um uh he says nothing of any scientific or academic value in that. He is talking about his faith, which is great, but that does not support or deny the whole thesis of this of this episode. Mm-hmm. This seems like the cherry on top kind of thing because they don't even go the first 20 minutes. They don't even go there. It's no. a religious thing. Yeah, I felt so it seems like a bit of a non sequitur. I, I, I kind of felt, you know, sort of a swerve there. It was like they didn't bring this up the whole episode. And now suddenly, yeah, they I don't know. I felt like, you know, it was almost like a U-turn into it or a skid. Yeah, it just seemed so out of out of place mm-hmm. with the rest of the episode. Now, of course, we've had nine-year-olds write books called mm-hmm. "Heaven Is for Real" on this on this kind of stuff, um, but um, uh, it just seemed odd and out of place, and of course, made no sense whatsoever. Mm-hmm. How uh, seeing your grandmother or having black marks against the rest of your of things you didn't do in your life? How does that make God? More loving. What, what else? He, what other adjective did he say? More loving and more whatever. I, I can't remember. You know. Yeah. Shows how much can, I pay attention. Can you get the shandy effect from a from from a, a, a <laughs> I, spoken word clip? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I've just had it. Okay. I, how, how about from an entire episode? Yeah. <laughs> Steve. Yeah, I. You know, going back to what you guys started at the beginning, I'm still not quite sure. What we've proven, uh, or we what proven, they've proven, we have proven nothing. Yes, well, yes, we've proven everybody should go back and watch Macmillan and Wife. Yes, <laughs> true. Um, also, I'd like to point out that the kid who wrote Heaven Is Real mm-hmm. has since said that um, he didn't really write it and it was all made up anyway. Right? Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> he and basically what he said was that he 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 went through a traumatic incident. In, incident uh, and people took advantage of him. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kelsa Priest. I know, I know. The the fact that the New York Times decided to put that on their non-fiction list was <laughs> an outrage enough. Yeah. <sighs> so, uh, anyone have anything else to add before we uh, button this up and shoot it? <laughs> all, I, all I can think about now is a young Susan St. James. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. <laughs> 
Stephen. That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I hear you. As Dave Broadbeck would say, she's a handsome woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was a this was a show on TV. Uh, <laughs> barely, barely. Steve, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Um, I am on the Twitter at Doc Pinko. Oliver. Uh, to find me my usual unsnarky self, you can find me on Twitter at Oliver Oxide. Um, no, that's that's the <laughs> snarky account. Uh, you can find me at Alien CG, and you can find this podcast at Illuminati Pod. Ladies and gentlemen, head towards the light. <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. Toodles, kids. See ya.